I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Portrait of Taylor on Fire edition. It's Wednesday, February 26th, 2020. On today's show, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the latest from French film director Céline Chama. It's a historical drama about the love affair between a noblewoman and the woman hired to paint her portrait. And then Taylor Swift is back on the Gap Fest but did she ever really go away? She's the subtext of everything we do on the show. We discussed the Netflix documentary, <laughs> Miss Americana. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. That was for you. And finally, the garbage language, quote unquote, of the modern American office. We discuss a spate of articles about uh, vacuous signifiers rocketing around the uh, office suites these days. Joining me is uh, Dan Coyce, Slate contributor and author most recently of How to Be a Family, the year I dragged my kids around the world to find a new way to be together. Dan, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, with these key learnings, I can definitely co-create innovative win-wins. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do uh, pre-prepared jokes on this show, Dan. <laughs> uh, that was just off the cuff, buddy. You nailed it. All right. And of course, we're joined by Julia Turner, who's the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Good morning, gentlemen. We're ready to rewind to France of the 18th century to a windswept island off of Brittany, where a young aristocrat has been pledged by her mother to be wife to a Milanese nobleman. But the matriarch would like her daughter's portrait painted first, so she hires Marianne, a young artist, to do it. There's a catch, though. Another has tried and failed before her. Eloise's proud, fractious, moody does not want to be married off. She is not in the frame of mind to cooperate with anyone when the movie begins, much less someone perceived to be an agent of her mother. So Marianne, the young artist, must not let on that she's there to paint the portrait and pretends only to be a hired companion instead, surreptitiously studying her subject as she can. But as the ruse unfolds, the two women become enchanted with one another and, 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 and. I think you can fill in the blank. The movie is written and directed, as I said, by Celine Chamet, stars Noemi Merlin and Adèle Anel. We will not listen to a clip because it would be in French, so I will turn directly to um, Julia. Julia, would you, uh, this is quite the film, what'd you make of it? I loved this movie. I love this movie because it is somehow both a really sweeping love story and uh, a movie about art and feminism. And I couldn't tell which it was more about because both of those themes are so perfectly balanced within it. I also love this movie because it is slow but gripping it is somehow you know just full of like big expansive beautiful shots of windswept bluffs and um dark castle corners and uh you know sort of static compositions and yet it's riveting like i was completely completely buoyed along by the tension in this very quiet story uh, and I think the whole movie is a marvel, and I'm excited to to try to unpack its marveldom without uh, making it dissolve with you guys. Am I am I wrong? Is it not a marvel, Dan? What do you think? A marvel or not marvel? It's a marvel. I mean, I, I don't want to be too boring about this, but yeah, this movie is amazing. I think it's a total masterpiece. It's the best movie I saw last year. Uh, it's the only movie that I wish like beat Parasite for every award, as Julia says. It is a stately paced, nevertheless still gripping, um, unbelievably romantic piece of work. It's smarter than us, but it wears that lightly. Uh, I just love, you know, I love everything about this movie. Well, 
I can give some some shape to this segment by asking you to explain to me what I missed because I I I didn't connect with this movie at all, and I think it's the kind of film that when it's not or if it's not landing with you, all of its strengths assume the form of their dialectical op- opposite for the cold viewer. Right? It just feels it doesn't feel stately and careful and patient. It feels slow and arty, mannered and self important, and its metaphors are quite self-conscious and somewhat heavy-handed again this is to this is to me in this viewing i i I understand that i'm radically outnumbered in this it's the kind of movie that i want very much to love one aspect of it that's essential to its nature is it is a depopulated universe that they're in the very beginning of the movie the artist is left on the shores of this island off of Brittany or a part of Brittany that's quite deserted. It certainly feels like a depopulated island. There's almost nobody in this film. It really centers, we should say, on three people, the third person being Sophie, the uh, servant of the house, effectively, who becomes integrated in um, into their love affair in what, to me, was the most interesting part of the movie. I thought that that class angle was, was fascinating. But that aura of intense concentration that you get when a movie is essentially about three people in a you know rattling around a gigantic you know manor house and walking along windswept beaches to me seemed sort of artificial and a little forced i didn't understand what world they occupied now julia i will say that that is the point of the movie is that this is this is a carve out in time doom hangs over this entire movie this woman eloise who's remarkable i mean it's an it's an incredible performance the woman is completely magnetic but she's been deeded over to a nobleman she has never met she does not want to marry this man her her sister and this is not a spoiler we know this from the beginning was similarly deeded but killed herself rather than go through it these are women who do not want to be betrothed. It, this is the anti-marriage plot in extremists. I, I, I like that aspect of it. I like the fact that this is a, a, a wrinkle in time in all of their lives that we know from the beginning is going to be exceptional. So I'm sort of talking myself into liking it more than I did when I was watching it. Why, I, why could I not lose myself in the ravishments of this film? I don't know, man. This is the most surprising verdict that you've issued on this show, and I'm including you being a Bachelor fan. I can't believe you didn't love this movie. It's 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 crazy to me. I mean, to me, the empty depopulation of it is what feels so radical about it. Like, you are looking at history, and I think that's part of what the the majestic, quiet composure of the frame is supposed to suggest, is that you are looking at history as depicted in art, but with all of the men fallen out of it. And we never get to see that because, of course, the men are the ones who did most of the painting and the ones whose paintings survived and were praised and whose view of the world has shaped everything we understand about the 1700s and the coast of Brittany and everywhere else. And so what's left in this, in this you know, guileless universe where the men are merely you know, oarsmen to deposit you on the shore. I really love when the guy who seems like he's going to walk her to the house carrying her stuff just gets to the part where the trail gets complicated with a big bunch of cobbles to be picked over. She's soaking wet and he just dumps her shit on the beach. And it's like, take it yourself, lady. Um, And then, you know, there's this, there's this Milanese gentleman to whom Eloise is betrothed if 
if the Marianne character gets the painting right, right? If she can capture a version of Eloise that seems marriageable so that he says, okay, sure, ship her over here and I'll, I'll take her instead of her dead sister. Um, so the, the tension in, you know, w- when we look at the faces of history, what faces are we actually looking at? Are we, are we capturing what women's experience was really like? Or is every woman we've ever seen in a historical painting um, just a, a kind of pert, pretty dummy who was designed to be looked at by men? It just felt so radical to me in the, in the binds of this incredibly quiet and yet tense and exacting little composition. I, I just was stunned by it. I was totally knocked out by it. Steve, you know, I have a, a little bit of a theory as to why – one reason you might have struggled with it a little bit. And it has to do with uh, viewing situation, viewing scenario. I think people talk a lot about, well, what movies do you have to see in a theater? What movies can you just watch at home? And they think of that often in terms just of scale and spectacle, right? You should see 1917 in a theater because it has so many explosions and plane crashes and and battles and stuff. And you can see Marriage Story at home because it's just people in a room talking for the most part. Um, this is a movie that you know that has a few beautiful has some beautiful shots of of stormy coasts and whatnot. Um, but it's not a spectacle movie in the traditional way. But I would still argue that this is a movie that really rewards seeing it in a dark theater on a big screen where those faces um, become overwhelming, where the environment has a better chance to overwhelm you and the tone and mood of the movie have a better chance to sort of enter you in the way that things do in a movie theater and the way that sometimes it is harder for them to do when it's on your laptop, when it's on you know your TV screen, when you've got your phone close at hand. I don't know the exact situation that you watched the movie in, but I do know, I think it wasn't in a theater, right? Yeah, no, I, was, I, I saw it via digital screener. Um, and so I, oh. I do think that this is a movie that really benefits from seeing it surrounded by other people who are experiencing the same thing as you, preferably with someone you love. Um, but even if not that in a, in a dark room where the sort of, where what I think is the, the emotional beat of the first hour or so of this movie, which is the time when this movie is either going to grab you or not grab you. I think it's delivered mostly silently and visually in a way that I think a movie theater best facilitates. No, it's so funny you said that. I had a busy weekend with my parents in town and a birthday party for my kids. And uh, at the end of it, I was like, and I had the digital screener and I was like, I got to go see this in the theater. Like I know myself, especially just lying on the couch. It's so tempting to sort of let your mind wander, kind of half look at your phone. Like it just, it, it, I saw it not, I saw it alone in a movie theater with a glass of wine and about four other people on a Sunday (laughs) evening. But even in that environment, it was very captivating. Uh, and I'm I mean, and that's, the theater. I, and that's not to position this, I think, as a particularly like difficult movie necessarily, but it is one where the, that first hour is critical in getting you to buy into what the movie is doing. And a lot of the movie's tools uh, are tools of the of the cinema, right? Of the big screen. Um, they aren't necessarily the tools that we always think of when we talk about that. But I do think that rhythm and sound and big close-ups of enchanting people and places really matter. It really matters what kind of screen you see those things on. I 
found myself unsurprised by what unfolded over the course of the movie with one major exception, which is the relationship that develops with this woman servant, Sophie, who's there to, you know, spark their fires in the fireplaces and provide them with uh, vittles and on and on and on. But that relationship becomes quite central in a way, Julia, as the movie goes on. I, I thought that was moving that this person who in another film might merely be a prop um, gets radically humanized and politicized. Yeah. I mean, if this were just Leo and Kate, and and I loved hearing Celine Shama in various interviews about this, compare it to the great romances Gone with the Wind and Titanic, which just, <laughs> I, I like hearing those two movies in the same, uh, in the same breath. Um, what is that third woman doing there? Right. She's not a figure. It's not a love triangle. She's not a figure of jealousy. She's the helper, but the helper is seen, right? Another figure who would have been in the background of any classic composition, you know, some made in the corner, you know, putting out so many different types of gruel. Oh, my God. All they ate were like flat soupy sauces served in different elaborate ancient looking dishes. I could I could read like a whole dissertation just on the kitchenware of this movie. But she's a, she's a real person. We look at her, too, and we look at her life. And I think to talk about what she's doing in the film, we should talk a little bit about uh, what happens to her. It's sort of hard to call anything a spoiler because this movie is so much about mood. But if you'd really like to see the movie without knowing anything, maybe pause here and skip ahead 10 minutes or so to our next segment. Uh, Go see it and then come back. But, you know, it's just we pull into the frame and really look at the things that weren't looked at. And one thing that we look at with her is she is a person who's had sex with somebody. We don't know why or how exactly and finds herself pregnant, doesn't want to be, has to try to figure out how to not be pregnant, embarks on a series of weird and potentially dangerous seeming home remedies and eventually goes and sees a local woman who helps her, I guess, successfully, although it's not necessarily fully resolved. Uh, at the end of the film, I thought. And there's a stunning moment where as the as the abortion is happening, Heloise tells Marianne, look, don't look away, look at this. This is the stuff of our lives. And it 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 was just I mean, I love that that third character is there. It makes it it's part of what makes it more than just, you know, puppy eyes at each other on the cliffs. Right. She's part of the argument of the movie, as you say, Julia, that there are characters and stories that get pushed to the margins uh, that have been pushed to the margins in art for centuries and that centralizing them in a narrative is valuable and allows you to open up all new stories that people haven't been thinking about or, or seen forever. And I think of her story and her relationship with these two women and her attempts to get an abortion as just as crucial to the message of this movie and to the power of this movie as the love story at the center. And, you know, that that's obviously the, the A plot, but this B plot about her abortion has so much to say about looking and seeing and understanding the stories that we haven't been told for, you know, centuries and centuries. All right. Well, the movie is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, You guys loved it. I was a little befuddled. I think the onus is on me and not the film, which everyone else loves. So check it out and um, uh, join in the chorus. Tell me why I'm wrong. All right, moving on. All right. Before we go any further in the show, we usually uh, insert something about our business. Uh, Julia, what do we have? 
Only Business Today is our Slate Plus segment. Uh, If you are a member and stick around, you will hear us debate a subject of hot debate prompted by a comment by Celine Shama, which is, was Leo DiCaprio a star when Titanic came out, or was he an unknown whom Titanic made a star? We will engage this classic debate topic in plus, and a victor shall be declared. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. Miss Americana on Netflix is a documentary, I will put that in air quotes, about the music star Taylor Swift. It's filled with interviews, home videos, concert footage, etc. And that's since it's fairly standard issue in following her evolution somewhat non-linearly in this instance from child star breaking big in the country scene to the biggest pop star in the world. And for a long, I mean, she is up there with Michael Jackson and Madonna in terms of scale. Um, But also it traces her path from being a little girl with a guitar to a woman on the verge of 30. The headliner events in this documentary are already familiar probably to most uh, viewers and potential viewers being upstaged, uh, hijacked really by Kanye at the MTV Music Awards, her entry into the Tennessee Senate race where she tweeted in favor of a rival to a Trump-style Republican. But the consistent theme it explores, I think, is more interesting. It's how Taylor Swift got trapped, I think is the word that I would use. Trapped by fame, trapped by the press, trapped in a good girl image she no longer finds appropriate, maybe age-appropriate to herself. Um, and a trapped really as a purveyor, as she says, of songs about breakups and feelings. And it tracks her attempt to drop out, regroup, and reappear as a woman and an artist in control of her life and career. Let's listen to a clip. The other thing, just from a security so standpoint, you think people- Taylor Swift comes out against Trump. I don't care if they write that. I'm sad that I didn't two years ago, but I can't change that. I'm saying right now that this is something that I know is right, and you guys, I need to be on the right side of history. Taylor, and if he Taylor, doesn't win, that at least I, I, at least I tried. Taylor, here's the here's the problem. I just want to read you what I wrote, and I'm going to try to start. I just really want you to know that this is important to me. I this totally is agree that, with have you, have the you just, issue. Have you heard? Have you just heard? Yes, I've read the entire thing, and the bottom line right now, I'm terrified. I'm the guy that went out and bought armored cars. I worry for her safety as much as anybody does. Maybe more. It really is a big deal to me. She votes against against fair pay for women. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking. Stalking. She votes. She thinks that that if you're a gay couple, or even if you look like a gay couple, you should be allowed to be kicked out of a restaurant. It's really basic human rights, and it's right and wrong at this point. And I can't see another commercial and see her disguising 
these policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. Those aren't Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. All right. Well, Dan, let me let me start with you. Um, I, that was certainly the scene that leapt out to me, and it and it did to a lot of critics. There's a lot. We'll get to it, but there's a lot that surrounds that that feels a lot like a 90 minute promotional video. Would you call this a documentary? Like, what was it like to be on the receiving end of this uh, document? Uh, it's not exactly a documentary, um, but it's it's interestingly a little bit more than a promotional video. Um, I also found this scene fascinating because of the way that it very uneasily straddles the line between those things in that, you know, whatever, to whatever extent this conversation was real, um, it does represent, I think, an actual struggle that Taylor Swift has gone through in the last few years, a struggle that I think many people would find like a little bit absurd. But that in the context of her insane life and celebrity makes perfect sense, which is this question of whether to, you know, whether to Dixie Chicks yourself, whether to come out and state your political beliefs at the risk of uh, losing a substantial number of fans and, and maybe risking your safety or whether to just keep quiet as she always has been. And that's a question that this that this movie makes clear is something that she wants us to know she's been struggling with over the last few years. That moment in that scene where she says, you know, I wish I had done this two years ago, but I didn't, and there's nothing I can do about that. That's not exactly true, right? In a way, this this movie is something that she's doing about that. She's trying to, for a certain subsection of fans, retcon her silence over the last few years uh, into something more understandable and uh, and more sympathetic. And to some extent, for me, it worked. Like, it made me think about the kinds of pressures that she's facing more seriously than I have probably taken them in the past. And so in that way, you know, this movie worked a little bit of mojo on me. All right, Julia, tell me. Tell me why this is the greatest movie ever made about the greatest person ever to live. I will. That is not what I will tell you. I will tell you that I got an astonishing and frankly unbelievable notification from Spotify yesterday saying that I was in the top 3% of Taylor Swift fans based on my listening habits, <laughs> which just seems like deranged. Like, I really like Taylor Swift. I think it's more that I don't listen to a lot of other stuff. I don't know. Anyway, I'm apparently like a huge stan as opposed to just a stan's Taylor, but really enjoys playing that up to rankle Steve stan, which is what I thought I was. So just you're like you know, a propose to your partner on <laughs> bended knee in front of Taylor Swift. Kind no, of you thing. Like, you're you're top you're a trigger the lib. <laughs> you're a trigger the lib Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> Yes, yes. Most of my Taylor Swift fandom is just to bother Steve, but apparently I'm really owning it in the privacy of my own relationship with my Spotify. Like, I top 20%? Yeah, I would have given you top 40. Sure. And I'm sure there's lots of people who only listen to her songs once. I 3% seems extreme. So just <laughs> take that, you know, just know that as you, as a preface to my remarks. I find her to be a fascinating figure. And for me, it's not about declaring her good or bad morally or thinking she's a vacuous manipulator or a crafty manipulator versus thinking she's a, a 
a tragic victim. Um, I just think she's a really interesting figure of female stardom who is facing a lot of the pressures that women of various kinds face and handles them interestingly. And I think this film is an interesting document. It didn't feel quite so uh, vacuous and inert as the Beyonce produced Beyonce documentary that we talked about, I think on HBO, like seven or eight years ago before the lemonade phase where she just gave platitudes. Like there's a, a, a pretty good arc here. But the fundamental contradiction between her saying in the beginning of the movie, the key arc of my childhood was that I just wanted to be thought of as good, which I love the honesty of, right? I didn't want to be good. I wanted to be considered good, talented, good, morally good, good, good girl, good, virtuous, good, not slutty, good. Like she, there's a lot of goods wrapped up in that good, but she's trying to present this and somehow she feels like the author of this thing, uh, which is why it does not feel like a documentary because it's so tailor serving in its structure, but somehow does not really address the irony of the fact that she starts the movie saying the main transformation of my last few years is that I spent my whole life wanting to be perceived as good. Then I went away after the kind of second flare up of the Kanye drama and spent a year snuggling Joe Alwyn and avoiding the paparazzi. uh, And now that's not what I want anymore. And I'm going to be bolder and quote, take the masking tape off my mouth and start having political views and, um, do different stuff. Um, but like the whole point of the movie is to make us think she's good and to like right. help explain her from a, her past political silence and her evolution into a more thinking person. Like it's, it's a performance of a different, brought more broader and more expanded form of goodness, or she wants to be perceived as good by a slightly right. different audience and the audience that perceived right. her as good before. And the movie just doesn't reckon with that at all. Like it, it that's what makes it feel like part of her promotional machine rather than a, a, Whereas, a truly yes. unfettered examination of what's complicated about her personality. So I wouldn't say watch it as art, but if you're interested in her as a figure, I think it's fascinating. And and the part that I loved is just watching her work. Like I will, mm-hmm. we'll come back around to it, Steve, but I loved my favorite moment is when she bosses Brandon Yuri of Panic at the Disco around because he's doing the guest verse on me, which I think we can all agree is just a a terrible song. But um, just her, you can hear her. She's so bossy. I love it. She's just like, no, you're singing me wrong. It's not me. It's meh. And you got to say meh. And he doesn't get it. And she like makes him do it three times until he nails it. She's giving him line readings. I love, I love seeing her her be the architect of these songs like of, of which i apparently am one of the top three percent of fans in the world <laughs> well i hate to break your heart but i'm not i'm not really triggered that much by you because you're only a one water molecule in the ocean of people who love this woman um and together that voluminous body of water does trigger me a little bit but but nonetheless i think i have an analytically sound reaction to this not documentary um i think three things have happened to taylor swift recently that this documentary is designed to um to counteract and answer to first of all i think she herself admits that she cultivated this synergistic identification among her tween you know audience between them and her that they kind of were supposed to grow up together um and built into that is the is the possibility that everyone is going to age out of it both parties will age out of it like they're going to be 17 year olds who are embarrassed 
um, by their 13 year old selves. And she's going to turn into an actual mature human being who no longer speaks to adolescent, you know, uh, uh, hopes and desires. Um, the second thing is the emergence of serious, serious competitors to um, her turf in a way. Um, or, or, or really, I think that the more accurate way of putting it is that the is that the turf has really shifted. Um, pop music is much, much, and pop music now, right? I'm, I mean, music that is still super melodic, built into a three, three and a half minute structure and designed to sell billions in, or whatever, move billions and billions of downloads and views is nonetheless much, much darker. Um, I The music that my kids listen to, and I'm talking now about like Billie Eilish, um, you know, King Princess, Claro, like all of these, this is all music driven by very young women who are in control of their own narratives, overwhelmingly writing their own music and performing it. And the sensibility includes more than just the pop and the hip hop that Taylor Swift grew up on. It seems to now include Nirvana or at least Green Day. It has something much harder and much darker at its core. And Taylor Swift is trying to move in that direction a little bit with a song like Lover in the direction of something echoey and weird and genuinely melancholic like Lana Del Rey. She's not good at it. That's just not what she's good at. She came up in country music. She's super melodic. She's super poppy. And that is not where music is at right now. And then, of course, the third thing is Trump. I mean, we live in a world in which a certain degree of smug, like, ah, that's too harsh. I mean, it, but but a kind of happy-go-lucky shallowness plays very differently post-2016 than it did before. And this movie seems to me to be designed to really address each of those. Now, whether it's addressing them substantively with the actual character of an actual person named Taylor Swift or in a kind of calculated and focus-grouped way, there's evidence for both in this movie. And I I will say this, I, I believe this documentary completely in the moments where she's deciding to send the tweet to, to become a political person in the face of the history that she knows well of the Dixie Chicks essentially having their career hit a brick wall when they did it against George W. Bush. And I thought that that person was being absolutely courageous and was making taking a calculated risk and was speaking from a very sincere core set of beliefs and desires. Um, the rest of the movie, I'm not that sold on it. I, you know, this is a person who's essentially confessing that she bears all the defects of a human being who grew up in public in, ambitiously in search of fame and therefore as enthralled to her audience in some weird way as her audience is to her. And yet you would think, well, who's the villain of that story? I mean, wouldn't it sort of be her parents? Would it be the moment that she decided to continue with the Faustian handshake? Like, I mean, who's the villain in the narrative? It's still, in a weird way, it's still a completely public narrative. The villain isn't her parents. It's not Sony Music. It's Kanye and my team. And also this collectivity of fans that adore her almost too much and have imprisoned her. And it's just an odd plea to be seen as an agent of her own desires as a human being and an author of her own art as an artist. At the same time, there's this incredible disburdening of agency throughout the whole thing. 
Julia's right that you see her exerting agency most in those very sparsely populated studio scenes in which she is making music. Um, that scene with her bossy around Brandon Urie is great. Other scenes of her just like noodling on her guitar with her producer are boring. But like that is clearly – it's a useful reminder that that is the environment that she came from, that creating music and writing songs, her kinds of songs, is the environment that she came from and where she excels and where she is a kind of – expert um, and where she has the greatest agency, but then watching that kind of agency be, be applied to the kind of image making, as Julia says, that she's supposedly repudiating in the context of this movie feels weird. And, you know, the weirdest moment for me in this movie was were those weird, have your cake and eat it scenes with the hidden boyfriend whose face we don't see, whose voice we barely hear, but who she mouths I love you to in the middle of playing Call It What You Want, you know, in a perfect outfit with perfect hair. Um, those scenes struck me as just like so insanely disingenuous and winking and uh, and I- image managey that they almost like undercut, I thought, everything else that this document was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it It feels a little bit like a um, peep show. Like, she's showing us what she wants. She's not showing us other stuff. She's. It's useful for the story to believe that after her tumultuous string of Jake Gyllenhaal's and Kennedy's, she, um, she's found some love and she doesn't want you to look too hard at it. And this is really about her political self and her personal self. I don't know. It feels calculated, but not in a way that makes me dislike her because I think she's interesting. And I do, I do think, I mean, it was funny. I watched it with my husband who has given me tickets to Taylor Swift concerts to attend with my sister and not him because he's not that interested in her. So when watching the concert shows, he's like, this is what she does. He's like, what is she good at? And I was like, not really singing, not really dancing. She's a really good songwriter and she's a very good performer of persona. And this film is like another performance of persona that has evolved to the moment. Um, I don't know if I would place it so much in the musical string of things. I mean, I think this was probably being made and shot pre pre Billie Eilish ascent just because that was so um, electrically sudden. But uh, and I don't know so much that I think it's, it's that she's musically trying to to ride a different trend. I think she's really trying to write songs that capture what she's going through and facing the challenge that lots of famous musicians face, which is suddenly what they're going through is really boring and (laughs) unrelatable. I'm so famous. I have so much money. I'm so alienated. I have have a beef with so-and-so like, you know, that that we've seen other acts go there before. Um, But I do, I don't know. I, I find her, I find her acts of self-authorship compelling. And to me, the most moving part was her talking about eating, like uh, talking about her relationship with food and about how as part of trying to be the image that she was trying to be and be perceived as good, that encompassed being a size double zero. And she really was just so shockingly, skeletally, I mean, not even skeletally, she, she looked like the good version of a model. She wasn't quite one of those people that you looked at and thought, oh yeah, they have a problem. It was part of her aura of like magic indomitable femaleness. And 
there's a separate conversation about her deciding to eat burritos for the first time in her mid-20s, and it's not presented as part of this food narrative, but you can certainly read it as such if you're the sort of person who's really counting every calorie and trying to maintain a double zero self instead of a size six self. It would be convenient to decide to have not discovered burritos yet. Um, And that part around her relationship to her own body and figure and performance of womanhood and performance. I mean, it's interesting to see this documentary the same week that we watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like she is, she's she's the artist and she's the object simultaneously. Um, and her evolving thoughts about her performance of objecthood, uh, I think to me are the most fascinating part of this movie. And that moment where she's talking about her disordered eating is a moment where the presentation of this movie, despite everything, really works, right? Like that, that's a performance. That's her in the back of a car driving from one place to another with a camera person in the seat next to her. And clearly the plan that day was for her to talk to the camera about her disordered eating. She made that decision ahead of time. She had, you know, the the arguments at her ready at hand and she was ready to go with it. But yet it also felt legitimately real and, and torturous for her to do that. And that kind of tension, the, the moments when the movie gets into that kind of tension where you know she is doing this for our benefit, but yet it is also painful or a struggle in some way, uh, are unique and interesting, I thought. You know, the moment that that struck me the, along those same lines was that weird thing at the beginning where we get to watch her not get nominated for any Grammys. Um, mm-hmm. that, that is not a thing that you usually include in a documentary like this. Um, and, and I know it's just there for the narrative of, oh, I just need to make a better record. Um, I'm curious, Julia, as a top 3% Taylor Swift fan, my impression <laughs> is that she didn't, she did not make a better record. Am I correct? No, actually, I think the reputation actually it seems like a better and better record the more you listen to yes. it among the top 3% of people listening to it. Agreed. <laughs> and that there actually are some interesting reckonings with darkness in some of those songs that that do speak to the evolving cultural moment in a smart way. And that Lover, the album that is the follow-up to the album for which she did not get nominated for Grammys, uh, in right. this documentary, an album for which she also did not get nominated for most of the big awards, is a thinner, worse, weaker album but um who knows ask me in uh, two years when i've ascended to the top two percent of taylor fans and i'll tell you what i really think of lover okay but before we go steve having watched taylor in the studio authoring her songs have you become <laughs> persuaded that taylor is the author of her songs yet or no well i th- i think to me it was never really a factual question of whether or not she wrote her own music or authored her own star image it was th- th- to me that's a relatively banal and factual question that can be settled with one trip to Wikipedia. It's the more interesting question about why we're so urgently trying to impute a certain kind of authorship to music that is as calculated and generic as I find her music. I mean, it just doesn't seem to me relevant who exactly produces it. It's, you know, there's something so focus grouped in its aura it's almost sadder to think that an individual human being striving to be sincere had made it um this will only get me more in trouble but it's like a kind of reverse turing test where we're attempting to so anticipate the tastes of billions of people at a given moment in history that that we ourselves assume 
the vacuous interiority of the algorithm, you know, and then impute to that authorial individuality. It's just a Foucauldian nightmare and I want to escape it so badly. But I will say I liked the person that I was watching in this documentary. I loved watching that professional person work professionally. I just think that the final product is so uninteresting. I mean, I can't even, I don't even have like an angry pejorative word for it anymore. It's just boring is what it is. And and furthermore, I feel like I have some leverage in this debate now. I mean, the crazy idea that it was somehow sexist to find Taylor Swift's music banal, to me, is just, it's so deeply insulting. And over the last few years, there are just, there are so many artists uh, uh, who are younger than she is, who are women, who are young women finding their own voices and writing incredible music that is now vastly, or not vastly more popular, but it's equivalently popular to her, to Taylor Swift's newer music. And it just puts a lie to this whole idea that one can't find Taylor Swift, you know, as personality-less, as a mass-produced object. Um, you know, I will not send uh, Jessamine back to play the original tape of that conversation in which I do not think you are arguing about the banality of her music, but in fact about her authorship of it. But uh, no, it's too bad that the songs that we are seeing her work on here are among her worst. Although there is a scene in the studio where she works on The Man, which is one of my favorite songs off of uh, off of Lover. Um, and it's about sort of how her history and public persona would be perceived if she were a man. And I liked hearing that one. I actually think that song is good. Before we leave, actually, there's something I'd like to try to say, which is that there's a real pathos to this documentary as much as it's a a peekaboo and a a kind of extremely, extremely calculated bit bit of Taylor agitprop. There's a genuine pathos to the fact that she grew up in public and doesn't now that she's approaching 30 quite know how to deal with it. I mean, it is very hard to exist substantially as public property as she has. And there are moments when she says, you know, my life is planned out two years in advance and there is actual pain on that person's face. And what I find genuinely sad about the implications of my thesis about Taylor Swift is that could be the source of a really, really, really interesting song. But she's so a creature of her own public life. She doesn't have much of a highly developed private vocabulary with which to write really genuinely interesting music about that, about having had a childhood stolen. She doesn't have, she's not an ordinary human being. She's an extraordinary human being. She was a star from the beginning and I admire her as a star, but it's very hard to have that put upon you when you're 11 or 12 years old and then carry it with you into your early 30s. And and certainly that's the basis of what's interesting about the movie, but I also don't think that she's had enough of an ordinary experience by which to say, here's what's weird about this. Like she can't relate to, you know, it's it's the reverse of every 13-year-old girl wishing that this had happened to her, this princess story had happened to her. The reverse of it is she doesn't know what that ordinary 13-year-old girl's life experience longings are that make them that person, that 13-year-old girl, projects so much onto the star image of Taylor Swift. You know, and and you know, I want to hear what it's like for that ordinary person in this gigantic, empty, lonely castle known as the outer persona of Taylor Swift. I want to hear 
you know, what it's like for that person to cry themselves to sleep at midnight, but then wake up the next morning and write a kick-ass song. And the pathos of this movie is you get glimpses of that, but it's such a tiny, ill-expressed part of who she is. And so it doesn't really make its way into the songwriting. I mean, it's starting to a a little bit. Lover's a pretty great song in some respects. There's some actual recognizable human affect and pain in it. But so, as in her music, those little moments of pathos in this documentary immediately get absorbed into the machinery, the public machinery of being Taylor Swift. It's interesting that, I mean, what you're essentially hoping for is another kind of reinvention, but a reinvention that in some way repudiates the work that's come before in a way that I think her reinventions haven't. She's always been very careful to even with a, you know a, a dark album like Reputation or a pop move um, like Red or Nineteen Eighty Nine, she's always been very careful to still speak fondly and warmly of the music that's come before and the life experience that's come before. Um, and it's true that in order for her to maybe take advantage of both her songwriting gifts and the specific life experience of the past twelve years, she would need in some way to repudiate not only that experience and the 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 toxic nature of it but a lot of that art and this document you know among the many other things it is is a kind of very gentle toe dipping into a repudiation of the, the of the kind of fame that she once had and you know it's in service of a different kind of fame that feels just as calculated to me when i watch it but at the same time it strikes me that it's not impossible that this is a kind of first step towards a different kind of music and a different kind of thinking about the songs that she writes i also think more of it's in the music than than maybe you give it credit for but having heard you say that lover is almost a great song i will i will take that mm-hmm. <laughs> Baby steps do, for I, everyone do, in the Taylor But Julia, does that get does that get me into the top ninety seven percent of <laughs> of Taylor no, Swift I, listeners? Maybe, maybe I'm not sure. Nudging me up, know. yeah. Not, not not sure where Lover ranks. I mean, I I I think you're right that the that the underlying question of why she's wired like this, how she came to be someone who writes songs, why it was that those little pink journals will, were filled with this particular kind of ambition, what is the relationship with her parents, what was the relationship with Nashville, like the, the actual why does she have this drive apart from being some kind of every girl who wants to people please like yeah lots of people do that they don't <laughs> they don't become Taylor Swift you know the specific mystery slash I think in your view lack of mystery or just fundamental un- uninterestingness of the core of her um, I think that's part of what I find interesting like she's she's she does feel sort of basic in her desires but that's part of what makes her seem relatable to so many people I think anyway that's a lot of Taylor uh, thank you for indulging another Taylor conversation Steve <laughs> but maybe, maybe we can get through a whole nother year without talking about Taylor again we'll see uh Dan, what what did your first uh, experience as a couples therapist, how did that feel? Uh, I feel like we made a lot of breakthroughs. I think you, (laughs) both of you and Taylor have all really taken great steps forward. I'm proud of all of you. You gave me a beautiful segue into our third segment, which is about garbage language. (laughs) Um, 
All right. It's Miss Americana. It's on Netflix. Check it out. Disagree with me. See if I care. All right. Moving on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. In her memoir, Uncanny Valley, the author Anna Wiener describes a special way of speaking in the corporate world. She writes, people used a sort of non-language, which was neither beautiful nor especially efficient, a mashup of business speak with athletic and wartime metaphors inflated with self-importance, calls to action, front lines and trenches, blitz scaling, companies didn't fail, they died, on and on. It was garbage language, she says. Uh, Julia, you're a boss. We read two or three pieces about garbage language uh, for this segment. Do you use garbage language? Do you tolerate it? I use it and tolerate it, I'm afraid to say. Or maybe not afraid to say. I really enjoyed the slate. Don't be afraid. Garbage language um, in which uh, Mark Margioni, who works on the product side at Slate, made a rousing and very well-written defense, I thought, of the moments in which garbage language is actually more efficient, more specific, more precise, and more useful than other terms. It is... 
its own kind of garbage language to complain about garbage language at this point. And I was actually really surprised by the piece in the cut about it because I think that Molly Young is one of the best writers that they have over there. And I felt that it's lament about lame business speak felt itself kind of canned and tired and I don't know. I like, haven't we all been complaining about this kind of language since pets.com? Like business people, they're so dumb. They, they, they no talk good. It's a familiar lament. It didn't feel like the piece broke new ground particularly or really advanced a theory of the ways in which corporate speak is evolving. Like I could imagine a close read of what the particular types of corporate language are that happen and, um, how they change over time. There was a little bit of a nod to that in the piece in the cut, but but not a particularly precise close reading, I thought. I was sympathetic to the slate view because sometimes you use jargon because it has a specific meaning within your specific context and it allows you to communicate efficiently what you need and mean. And then sometimes an inefficient, cumbersome, and ugly word takes hold and makes you feel insane because the English language is being tortured on your watch. The one I particularly hate and cannot stomach is learnings. What were your learnings from that? It's just not faster or more efficient or more useful than what did you learn or what did you find out? Hey, you did that thing. What did you find out? Tell me tell me what you know now. Learnings is the one I can't stand. But basically all the rest of them I just use with abandon. Dan, I'm going to need you to help me operationalize this touch point. I think that there are, there are three possible uses for using buzzwords like that. The first is, as Julia says, I think rather generously, is, is that it's just simply more efficient. That jargon presumably emerged in the military where you needed to say things very quickly, very efficiently, and very clearly. You had to say something fast and know that the person understood it exactly. And so, you know, you have these radically shortened touch phrases that allow you to get from point a to point B linguistically quickly. Okay, maybe that's some of the time. A second reason might be purely tribal. As a tribal marker, we're part of this group of people who use language like this. You know, we do it in this industry. We do it in this particular company. It makes us who we are. It binds the um, tribal band um, together. Uh, the third reason might be to prove that you're an early adopter. I often find that these things are faddish. They come in and then they, and they go out. I mean, presumably if they were so goddamn efficient and so useful uh, and so utilitarian, they would actually stick around for a while. I mean, a couple of them do. Obviously, we still say disrupt and there are a few others that, that seem to have some semantic staying power to them. But but at, much more commonly, they, they come in, they have a fad, they have a vogue, and then they leave. And that, dance seems to me, that life cycle describes a few select people knowing how to use it at first. Uh, they prove their insider status by using it, and then it debases as people use it more frequently and goes out of style. Anyway, what do you think? Thanks for looping me in, guys. Um, I I think that thinking of this kind of language as a kind of weapon used by those in the know against those who are not is definitely the way I had sort of always thought about it, that the frustration I felt when I would be in meetings with like business people who used business words, uh, I took that as a sort of specific affront to my lack of business sense, right? The fact that I did not inhabit that world. Um, it seems to me that the Anna Wiener book and this Molly Young piece are both evidence of uh, something that is a little bit unique 
to our era or new, which is that creatives, like quote unquote creatives, now are are forced to interact with the business side of their various industries in ways that they maybe weren't once upon a time. And so when a Molly Young lands at a dot com or when an Anna Wiener, you know, a person whose previous experience uh, was in the literary world, lands at a dot com, they are suddenly faced with this completely different world that has its own language as much as their own worlds have their own languages and they're baffled by them. And and watching the divide at Slate uh, inside Slate over this Molly Young piece, which led eventually to Mark Morjoni writing his piece, was instructive for me because that divide was entirely between all the writers and editors and everyone on the product side. It's no accident oh, that really? someone from the product side – oh, yeah. It's no accident that someone from the product side wrote this rebuttal because it was unanimous among people on the product side that this article was bullshit and that, in fact – any number of the terms that this that the that Molly Young just like laughs off are in fact unbelievably useful and used by them every day in their coordination of complicated projects and teams that need to know exactly what they're doing at any given moment. The example that they all touched on, which is something that I think Mark touches on in his piece, was RACI. RACI, I don't know how it's pronounced, R-A-C-I, because I've never encountered it in my creative work in my entire life. Molly Young makes this whole, like has a whole riff about how someone uses this racy in a in a conversation and she doesn't even know what that means and they try and explain it to her but tell her it's hard to explain and she's like what is it is it a chart um but in fact it's an incredibly useful uh way of thinking about a project that everyone on slate's product team uses all the time and that drives their way of thinking about how they get things done and just because molly young doesn't know what it is and can't be bothered to like figure it out is not necessarily a reason to dismiss it as garbage language. In fact, it's useful to people with totally different job descriptions than me or than Amali Young. And so watching that divide was really fruitful for me in, in thinking a little bit differently about this kind of language. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be annoyed the next time I'm in a meeting with Dan Checker or whoever, and he says a bunch of terms that I don't understand. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, but like thinking of it as a thing I could maybe strive for if I wanted to understand that part of the business, as opposed to just language that's being wielded as a cudgel to make me feel like I don't belong, uh, is maybe a more useful and profitable way of thinking about it. It's so interesting because I think my thinking on this has evolved in a couple ways. Over the last 10 years, I probably would have been much more sympathetic to the Molly Young article 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Before and you since then, were an editor-in-chief. <laughs> yeah, before I was a boss, before I had more to do with the business side, and before like a broader trend toward descriptivism and away from prescriptivism in language, where just in general being an asshole about what kind of words people choose and use is like less cool or uh, valorized than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Like I think respecting that subcultures have their own dialects is is more au courant as a way of thinking about language among linguistically savvy people than it was in the late 90s and and you know sort of the Douglas Copeland era. I reject your thesis that creative people are encountering business people more than they used to. Like I, I don't know. I feel like that I mean it's certainly true in media. Making, 
right? Yeah, I mean, 20, the, the, the 20 years ago, well. I was never going to be in a meeting with a bunch of business people talking about that stuff, but that's just the way it is now. Well, I don't know. You might have been a copywriter, right? Like you might have been in, on the ad side, like an alternate version of you. It's not like there's so many journalists in the world that that's really a, a big animating factor here. Um, mm. So, so I think I have come to learn more about business. And when you learn more about business, then more of those terms have meaning. Not all of them do. And some of them are, are obfuscatory rather than informative. But, you know, a, a lot of those words do have real meaning. I also think the job of writers is primarily to communicate, right? So we think really critically and aggressively about how language communicates ideally to pretty broad audiences, but maybe even to audiences with just a specific sensibility. And many other people in other professions also must use writing to communicate, but it is not their primary function. And so they end up using terms that are specific to the things they need to communicate and also maybe using them with slightly less elegance in some cases, although I thought Mark Morgioni's piece was pretty damn well written. But, uh, you know, whatever. It's, sometimes you have a combination of the use of jargon and then slightly infelicitous sentences or whatever. You'll encounter that in an email or in a meeting. And the whole thing, it can, can just rankle people who are of a writerly frame of mind. But the hauteur of the writer suggesting that that writing is the only way to encounter the world or pure and perfect language is the best possible way to encounter the world is also its own sort of tiresome tribalism um <laughs> that you know for people who are like i just want to talk about the learnings from that meeting to be encountered with like a sniff and a cold shoulder is is <laughs> it's its own idiocy like why be a snob they just want to tell you what they figured out in their project and they're going to use a lame word for it like I just get know. over it like why wait are you being second. such an asshole wait a second they're not just well now you're making it sound like they're just being an asshole and i i think that that's just silly right i mean so let's say that there are two extremes here one is let's let's call just for the sake of argument at one extreme there's the military if you fuck up if your language gets misconstrued, if the cable gets misread, thousands of people die. So your language needs to be precise. At the other extreme is the English department. You know, you're writing about literature. What's the product here? A bunch of peer-reviewed articles about Edith Wharton. You know, you're trying to establish your authority. Your authority comes from being part of a tribe. And you know, you're you're signaling your status as an in-group, you use recourse to jargon, ask to define it for an outsider, you might babble on incoherently. Most of us exist between these two extremes. We live in the white collar world, this giant, you know, octopus, bureaucratic octopus, much of which is devoted to make work. I do not think it is so crazy to point out that as a way of seeming very purposeful and as if your authority is earned, you develop a kind of incestuous vocabulary of the pseudo expert in order to make your somewhat ambiguous bullshit job seem vital. I'm not saying that's all of this language, but to point out that that is sometimes where this language comes from, I have people very close to me who work in such white collar environments. They all decry it and they're not doing it from the standpoint of, you know, Marcel Proust. The other thing I would say is that, you know, journalism does have a, you know, moral writ in a way, and it isn't a rebuke to business per se. It's just a rebuke to the use of euphemism uh, as a source of political evasion. And if you 
go into journalism as a vocation, you're highly likely to have Orwell as one of your heroes. And, you know, you're addressing yourself not to a tribe, but to every citizen within earshot. And in addition to just telling them the facts, you are implicitly or explicitly exhorting them to use language in a direct and accurate and non-euphemistic way because it makes certain kinds of lying, especially political lying, that much harder to do. And a society in which every person exists within a little white collar you know, tribe with its own in- inner language and never gets rebuked by the generalist who says, we need a common vocabulary devoted to factuality and lucidity in addition to a literary language devoted to metaphor and beauty. You know, I just think it's too easy to go against an argument like this and say, oh, these horrible literary journalistic snobs and their devotion to the use of lucid, plain-spoken, direct, democratic no, language. No, I hear it's you. Like those those I, things are I virtuous for a reason. I mean, you know, I, that's true. and it's that's not totally like they're not fair. getting and systematically it, eroded in the, in the contemporary world. Wow, Julie, that I can't totally believe you're fair. on the side of Newspeak. <laughs> no, it's fair. And I'll, look, I as as someone who's part of a much bigger culture at the LA Times than I was at Slate and and where we're communicating lots of things in lots of different directions, like trying to make our institution communicate in a plain spoken human voice instead of a bureaucratic one is like one of the things I care about and I'm trying to to work on here. Um and it's not always something that comes naturally. I will say that's fair. I will also say that one one point of Molly Young's critique that I think is worth thinking about is who and how is the language directed at? So if it's a team working with the team and they have a shorthand, that's one thing. Uh, if it's a boss trying to avoid the responsibility of being direct about someone's underperformance, then that sucks. You shouldn't do that. You got to like tell people when they're screwing up and, and do it in an honest and straightforward and humane way and rather than in a passive aggressive way. So where where corporate language becomes um, cover for just human to human cowardice from management, like that's unacceptable and you have to find a way around that. And I think that Mark Margioni points out that some of the, some of the corporate speak in a meeting could be feeling padding. I liked his line about the fact that when someone says, let's put a pin in this, what they really mean is shut the fuck up, John. <laughs> like you're being an idiot and you're embarrassing yourself or our institution or whatever else, but let's put a pin in this as a way to uh, move that conversation to a, another less public venue. I, I think there are times when padding your language in public is is probably worth doing, but padding it in direct feedback to a direct report is something to be judicious about, I think. Yeah, right. The part of Molly Young's piece that I think is the strongest is the part about Away, the the luggage company, um, and how their CEO was sending out messages to underlings that specifically were using garbage language to mask discipline and punishment in the language of like personal betterment and the good of the company. And that is the most dangerous version of this kind of language. Yes. Um, I also think just the contagion of it in a workplace is it's like, you know, it's like a, the virus on a ship or something. Like it, it just gets like stuck in all the cracks and crevices and you're in one meeting and then you kind of like the way somebody says such and such and you say it in the next meeting and it just, it permeates really quickly. So I don't know. I mean, Dan, I, I have been your boss. Like I'm surely I'm responsible for some horrible word that you've now heard. Do your worst. What garbage language did I 
iterate, instill, perpetuate, and uh, and fail to disambiguate at Slate. Uh, I'm sorry, you've been erased in an Orwellian fashion from all uh, memory. <laughs> I was never the editor Slate. of Slate. <laughs> yeah, so I don't actually remember anything. I'm deeply sorry. You're right about the way that it's about the virus nature of these things, right? And the other really strong part of Molly Young's piece was in her dissection of um, the WeWork prospectus to the SEC, in which she coins, I think Molly Young has coined this, this very useful way of thinking about the job that language can do at its worst, um, which is, she writes, um, in its fidelity to incoherence, WeWork's majestic PDF revealed a now obvious truth about the organization, which is that its ratio of ingenuity to bullshit, a ratio present in every organization and indeed every human, was tipped too far in the wrong direction. When the garbage language becomes the only language that an organization can speak, I think it does tell you something about that organization as a whole. Um, and and that, I think, is such a perfect critique of WeWork and the way that it did weaponize that language, not against yeah. individual employees, but against the very idea right. that a company should make sense. Yes. And and by the way, it's not only ripe for abuse internally in a corporation, getting people to work overtime for no pay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It allows people to forget what they're making and what they're doing vis-a-vis the rest of the world, right? I think that's the real point is that if you completely take off your George Orwell, I'm a citizen, you know, capable of treating language like a windowpane hat when you go into the office, that's very convenient for forgetting about the externalities that you're creating while you're there. Yeah, I I agree that that part of the piece was strongest and that there are companies that have a ton of funding and no clear purpose and where the the whole institution is a sort of shell game and the language is this is this mystifying maddening cover for it i cannot i can only imagine how alienating it would be to work in that kind of environment but i do think the notion that in general corporate america is full of make work and people kind of shuffling papers around and and trying to sell sound important by putting jargon on top of them doesn't square i mean the story of even the white collar american workplace is just an incredible crunch for productivity where everybody's job has many more jobs in it than they did or would have 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. And so the number of places where language is a cover for the absence of work, I think is fewer and fewer. And the number of places where language is a tool to try to hyper efficient size. <laughs> Let's make that one go viral. <laughs> to make hyper efficient. <laughs> Uh, the production of like far more work than is feasible for the size of the team supposed to do it in any kind of balanced life uh, changes the the way the jargon operates. Okay, fair enough. But there is a book refuting you from 2018 called Bullshit Jobs, a Theory by a, a London School of Economics a anthropologist named David Graeber. But people are free to check it out and agree or disagree with it. Anyway, all right. The piece is Garbage Language by Molly Young. Why do corporations speak the way they do? Uh, check it out. All right, moving on. Glad we're putting a pin in this. Let's circle back in a couple weeks. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dan. What do you have? Ladies and gentlemen, I have important news, which is that it is 13 days until M Day. That is Mantel Day. That is the day the final book in <laughs> Hillary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy comes out. Gird your loins, clear your calendars, prepare yourselves. The only thing you should be doing right now is rereading Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies so that when the mirror and the light comes out on March 10th, you can dive right in without delay. 
I stand on my conviction that these books are ferociously smart. They are insanely entertaining. They are insightful. They are funny as hell. Uh, I have found in recent years, as I have reread them, to talk about the Broadway show and then to talk about the uh, BBC adaptation and then now to talk about this new novel, these books reward infinite rereadings. Uh, if you haven't even read them once yet, you should do it. I do think that this book coming out, this third book in the trilogy, is probably the literary event of the year, maybe of the century thus far. So you should get on board. Come on. She's great, but come on. It's only 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. I said thus far. I don't know what's coming out in 2060, <laughs> but if you know any other trilogies where the first two books won the Booker Prize and completely transformed the way we think about uh, English history, do let me know. <laughs> Ooh, I like a little sass in the endorsement. Uh, all right, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I am endorsing a book called Golden State by Ben Winters. Ben Winters wrote uh, Underground Airlines, which was the book that hypothesized um, sort of an alternate history of slavery in the United States uh, and a civil war that had not ended with the uh, extinction of slavery. And this book, I think, helps round out an argument that Ben Winters is a very, very good establisher of high concept in intriguing and thought-provoking worlds. Um, I'm still halfway through the book, and I, I'm not certain how it's going to land its plane plot-wise, but the concept, which is really interesting to ponder, is a future California, the rest of the country seems to have been obliterated in some kind of mayhem, that is fixated on the objectively so, or the truth. Uh, and there are certain people within society who can kind of feel a lie. The whole society is devoted to the telling of truth and to the recording of facts. When people greet each other, they exchange truisms like two plus two is four and um, et cetera. And uh, everything is surveilled. Every human keeps a record of everything that happened to them in a given day. Um, and it, it just touches on and triggers all kinds of thinking for me about where we are politically, where we are in terms of the reporting of the news, where we are in terms of a surveillance state. It, it's, he is just a really fascinating builder of worlds. And uh, I have found the book really entertaining and interesting to dig into. So that's Ben Winter's The Golden State. That book is really fun. It lands the plane pretty well. Uh, it's like an, a, sort of an, an, an anti-1984 in its investigation of the dangers of truth. Uh, ben Winters also wrote a really great trilogy uh, before Underground Airlines um, uh, called The Last Policeman, which is set uh, on an earth that has just been informed that a meteor is hitting it in a year and there's nothing we can do. It's also mm. great. Mm. I would actually be I would be curious what Steve would make of this book. I hadn't quite put it against 1984 in my mind, but. It's an obvious place to put it. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to check that out. Um, all right. Well, I am going to um, endorse this week an essay in the New York Review of Books. It was on their website uh, called "Reading Sod in the Age of Epstein: The Marquis de Sade." By um, the essay was by Mitchell Abador, and I thought it was wonderful because it did something I think necessary, which was expanding out from the obvious. And, and revolting titillations of the Epstein story to uh, thinking in a larger sense about how someone claims those kinds of rights over 
other people and putting it in the context of a recent translation of Desaad's 120 days of Sodom. And, um, uh, it's beautifully executed small essay about how a certain kind of grandiose libertarian bases their liberty on really denying and you know radically abrogating the, the liberty of another and what sorts of power relations have to exist in the world for one person to think that they have the right kind of absolute right to express their own individuality by completely erasing someone else's agency and individuality someone else's moral like my moral freedom is dependent upon me stealing your moral freedom um where does that come from and it's obviously it's libertine is just a word that you have to associate with the aristocracy and he does not grind away at this point in this essay it's very lovely and lightly delivered but it's clear that we've allowed a certain kind of aristocracy to come into being by which someone like Epstein isn't just a lone monster, but he's, and I think we all sense this intuitively, but he's the symptom of something much larger and much sicker, a, a system of permission giving uh, had to exist in order for this person not only to do these things to these underage women, but to have had so many enablers in the power structure. Um, and so I think it's just an amazing little essay. I thought it was beautifully done and by someone who's very, very familiar with Desaad's work in French and so can speak to the history of translating him, his reception, you know, uh, history of his readership and what these new translations are like. It was beautifully done. It's called Reading Sod in the Age of Epstein by Mitchell Abador and we will link to it. It's on uh, uh, New York Review of Books uh, website. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamyn Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Julia Turner and uh, Dan Coyce, thanks so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. 
The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.